Blog Talk Radio. family. We're coming to you live from the EAL Radio Show Studio in St. Augustine, Florida. Thanks for listening to Eastern Airlines Talk Radio. My name is Neil Holland, the producer of the show. We have a great show and a great guest for you tonight. And to all the listeners around the world, we say welcome. Hello, Eastern family and friends around the world. It's great having you with us. My name is Chuck Albright, and I'm coming to you live from the beautiful villages in central Florida where the weather has been a balmy 80 degrees all day out on the golf course. Welcome, and thank you for listening and calling the show. You've truly made us the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. In fact, we can now say we've become Eastern Airlines' international radio show. We'd love to hear your comments and share your memories with the radio listeners from around the world during the broadcast. If you haven't called the show before, all you need to do is call 213-816-1611 and just say hello, and you can talk to us on the air. You'll be live. We can identify many countries around the world and listen in with our Blog Talk Radio application. Isn't it great that we can keep the Eastern legacy going out not only to the Eastern family, but to the listeners from many different countries around the world? That's what we try to do every week on the EAL Radio Show. want you to join us, adding your voice to our broadcast. Our thanks also to those who choose to listen by computer using the radio icon on our homepage at www.ealradioshow.com or perhaps by signing in at the site of our provider, Blog Talk Radio, at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. Should you wish to talk during our live broadcast, feel free to use our call-in number 213-816-1611 at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Let me repeat the number so you can write it down for Monday night's visits. 213-816-1611, and it's at 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. By the way, we'd like you to tell your friends about us. And don't forget, you can listen to any of our 406 Monday night broadcasts and 75-plus Thursday broadcasts by simply going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. Scrolling down through the archives of the broadcast, each episode is briefly described, and we're getting close to 500 episodes. Wow, that's going to be a milestone. 
Our lines are always open for calls, and you can choose not to participate or talk live on to our host. We ask you to please mute your phone because our producer does not have the capability of filtering out background noises like glasses and ice and things of that sort. We see your number one for takeoff, so Captain, let's get flight 409 in the air. Tower Blur, 650 volt, tip off. 409, and the topic is an interview with a pilot and writer of aviation and software engineering, also a discussion on pilot training. Greg Travis has written a recent abstract on the Boeing 737 MAX incidents that have occurred with two international airlines, Lion Air and Ethiopian Airlines. Our interview with Greg presents questions on his abstract, as well as recent articles on the two fatal airline crashes in the brand-new Boeing 737 MAX, published in the news the last several months. A recent article in the Wall Street Journal read, Crash investigators believe an automated flight control system that went haywire led to last month's fatal crash, of Boeing 737 MAX in Ethiopia. But some pilots, industry officials, and air safety experts are also raising the questions about the actions of the cockpit crew as detailed in the preliminary accident report. Greg has written many articles on the aviation sector back in the 1990s, and his future direction is heading into more technical aviation writing on a full-time basis, though he is currently writing on the U.S. healthcare issues that have been published in that space. Call in with your questions for Greg on his written abstract and on your thoughts on this very critical matter to the airline industry. Join us to hear more by calling 213-816-1611 during the show. Our producer will take your call, and you can speak directly to Greg with your questions. We do have a full article on the radio website by going to www.ealradioshow.com. Hello, Greg. All of us here at the radio show welcome you, and thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for having me. This is a great pleasure. Our first question comes from Chuck Albright, 
a former employee with Eastern Airlines, and a host here at the EAL radio show. Chuck, please go ahead with your question. Thank you, Dorothy. Thank you, Greg, for being with us. Why did you decide to do this abstract work, and what really motivated you to take on what the media has been covering since last year's crash of Lion Air, and just why do you call it an abstract? Um, well, let me answer the first question as to why I call it an abstract. Um, that was actually suggested to me um, uh, by somebody after I wrote the article uh, originally. Uh, they thought if I write it, wrote an abstract at the front of it that it would uh, that summarized uh, my points, it would it would enable people to be drawn in. Uh, so I'm going to put that on somebody else, not me. Um, now, going back to the first part, I remember right after the Lion Air crash, uh, thinking that there was something not quite right. I've studied plane crashes for 30 years or so, um, and there were things about the Lion Air crash that, that just didn't sit right. First, why was the stall prevention system, MCAS, necessary now? After all, it, it hadn't been present in any previous 737 models. What was different about the 737 MAX? Second, and I don't remember where I found this, but I found that the MCAS system relied on only a single angle of attack sensor. I, I found that very strange and not something that fit with what I knew about aircraft design. I couldn't come up with a logical reason why they would have done that. And then the final straw came not too long ago after the Ethiopian crash. A week or so after that crash, I was actually in a hotel in Montreal. My son and I had flown in our plane uh, up to Montreal for his spring break. And I was sitting there at the desk in the hotel room, and enough pieces about those two crashes, the Lion Air crash and the Ethiopian crash, came in that I had something of kind of a eureka moment, and that I thought I was looking at what was a classic case of normal failure. And normal failure is a subject that's deeply fascinating to me. And right there, I, I banged out the initial version of the paper in about an hour, just sitting there. And, and let me kind of back up a little bit and, and, and tell you what I think about normal failure. There's, there's been a lot of um, work in the engineering space on this topic. But just briefly, um, normal failure refers to the fact that as systems become more complex, and by systems I mean things like aircraft, um, but as they become more complex, they become subject to more and more um, uh, methods of failure, if you will. And the interactions between the pieces of the systems um, start to behave in ways that, as Charles Perrault wrote in his book about normal failures, are incomprehensible, meaning they can't be foreseen. And so because the systems have become so complex and because they, they have so many different ways in which they, individual parts of the system can fail and those failures can cascade, failure of the system as a whole becomes normal. And, and, and it's kind of a, a strange term to use, but the, the basic point is that the more complex the system, the more that you can expect it to fail, and the more that you can expect it to fail in ways that are incomprehensible. Greg, our next question is from our host, Don Gagnon, and my, my dad, he's my husband. Don? Uh, hi, Greg, and welcome to the show. Um, my question is, uh, you stated in your article that bigger is better. Uh, what do you mean by that? Um, thanks, Don. That was a reference to the fact that, in general, in general, the bigger you make something, physically bigger you make something, 
the more efficient it becomes. For instance, a big building is more efficient than a small building in terms of the amount of building materials that need to be used per square foot of usable space. Um, there are all other, you know, you, you hear the term, a related term is, is economies of scale. And with heat engines, and heat engines are engines that essentially um, generate work through, um, through heat, uh, like the gasoline engines in our cars or the jet engines in our planes, there's something called Carnot efficiency. And that's basically the ratio between the, the heat that's used to generate work inside the, the engine and the temperature of the exhaust, whether it's coming out the tailpipe of your car or whether it's coming out the back end of a jet engine. The hotter the, the flame inside the engine, if you will, and the cooler the exhaust is coming out of the engine, the more efficient it is. And, and unfortunately, I don't have time to go into why here, but the easiest way for an engineer to improve that ratio, to improve the engine's Carnot efficiency, is to make the engine physically larger. And so we see that in the 737 case, when 737 originally debuted, debuted it had JT-8 engines. They were basically late 1950s, early 1960s um, vintage engines. And if you see a picture of an early 767 uh, and, and then compare that to a picture of a 737 MAX and its engines, you'll notice that the engines in the, in the early 737 are, are physically quite a bit smaller. And what that meant for the 737 was the, in the original version, they could fit the engines under the wing and still have a lot of ground clearance uh, underneath the engines. As they wanted to get more and more efficient engines, that meant that they had to have larger engines for the reasons I, I said earlier. Those larger engines started to become a problem in that they literally would not fit underneath the wing of the 737 without hitting the ground, especially in, for instance, a, uh, a crosswind landing when you're, where you're trying to dip the wing a little bit. So they, they Boeing resorted to a lot of um, stuff to try and make the larger engines nonetheless fit. They overlies the engine intakes, which you can see on a 737 as the engine intakes uh, being kind of flat on the bottom to clear the ground. And then with the 737 MAX, the engines became so large that they actually had to move the engines forward and up so that the top of the engines are actually above the, the top of the wing itself. And, and just before I finish here, I said in general earlier in terms of bigger is better um, because it's not a hard rule. There are like everything's exceptions to that rule. And, you know, we, we're seeing that bigger is better is not always true, for instance, with Airbus and its uh, pain that it's feeling with the, the gigantic A380. Hi, Greg. Uh, my name is George Jen. I'm a host of the show and a retired captain with Eastern and U.S. Airways. Uh, we didn't operate the 737 at Eastern, but the, uh, we used the Douglas DC-9 for short-range flying. I did, however, fly quite a few hours. I think it was about 4,000 at U.S. Airways in the uh, 737, 200, 300, and 400. Uh, I particularly like the lead-in to uh, uh, a discussion in your abstract article where you titled it Renton, of course, that being the home of Boeing, we have a problem. Uh, can you talk about uh, why you picked that, uh, that phrase? And I thought it was pretty clever, you know, a good space-age space phrase. Uh, thanks, George. Yeah, that was uh, that's exactly what it was. It was just my cute way of kind of acknowledging the oft-heard phrase, Houston, we have a problem. Of course, that comes from the, the film Apollo 13. 
Um, and I was lucky enough that Houston and Renton sound enough uh, alike that, that it works. Um, and as you point out, Renton, Washington uh, is where they manufacture the, the 737 um, uh, series. So it was just my way of kind of introducing a new part of, of, of the article with a phrase that I thought would be familiar to uh, a lot of readers. Um, and, and I'm writing not necessarily for the aviation community because the aviation community already knows a lot of stuff, but I'm trying to write in a way that, um, you know, a, a layperson, somebody who's a, maybe a passenger or just uh, interested in the subject itself can, can find accessible. Thank you. Yes, uh, Greg, uh, Mike Scott here. I'm a former Eastern Newman uh, captain uh, with the, in the, in the corporate field. And you asked in the abstract, why MCAS? And you stated, follow the money. Uh, was it an, an accessory Boeing that could be added? Uh, accessory Boeing could add on to the new plane uh, for extra money? Or it says, heck, it says, we all knew what the airlines and the pilots do to recognize a stall. And uh, what do you do to recover from a normal flight attitude? And I might add that why uh, should a pilot stall a commercial airliner in the first place? So, <laughs> that makes sense. That's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's a that's a great question. Um, let me let me kind of address a, a couple of different things here. First of all, what I'm seeing in um, and, and as a 737 pilot, um, please correct me if I if I get any of these details wrong. But what I'm seeing in the press is there's there's a certain amount of confusion about what Boeing sold as extra equipment. Um, it is my understanding that what Boeing offered to some airlines was some additional cockpit in, uh, uh, instrumentation, particularly the cockpit instru instrumentation that would tell if the two angle of attack sensors on either side of the, of the 737's nose disagreed by one another. So kind of a, a, an AOA disagreement light. Uh, I know that some airliners have, for instance, a flap disagreement light. If, if the flaps on one wing come out further than, than the flaps on the other wing, um, and, and I, my understanding is that that piece of equipment, that that disagreement indication, was an extra cost uh, option. But as far as I know, and again, I'd, I'd love to be corrected if I'm wrong here. As far as I know, um, all 737s, at least since the 737NG, the new generation 737, which was the generation before the Max have had two angle of attack sensors, one on either side of the nose. And, and my understanding is that basically prior to the MAX, um, those angle of attack sensors were fed to a cockpit indication of, um, of angle of attack that could be brought up on one of the, the pilot's displays. Um, myself, I know, and I, I've spoken with a lot of commercial pilots, angle of attack is not the issue in commercial airline flying, uh, certainly not the issue in, for instance, flying my Cessna, that it is with military pilots. So those, those indications about angle of attack in, in the 737 prior to the MAX weren't very important, and, and thus the indicate, the, 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 some kind of an indication of a disagreement also wasn't that important. Um, so I think that certainly prior to the 737 MAX, um, the whole AOA system, it may have been used a little bit to, to for instance, do things like speed trim under varying, uh, varying speeds. But uh, beyond that, I, I don't know of any, of any use to it. Um, so I think that the, the extra add-ons that the Boeing is t you, people have heard about um, 
weren't really pushed by Boeing. They weren't really bought by the airlines because they weren't interested in it. And the angle of attack sensors as equipment on the airplane didn't really become a flight critical piece of equipment until the, the introduction of MCAS with the 737 MAX. Great. Mm-hmm. My name is now, Colleen now, now, Well, I'm sorry. Uh, let, me, let me kind of go back to, to uh, the other part of that, that question, which is about the stall characteristics. I, I don't know much, uh, if anything, that the stall, the actual stall characteristics of the 737 MAX differ from the previous 737, i.e. once it's in a stall, I believe that the recovery techniques, the nastiness, if you will, of the stall is very similar, if not exactly the same as all 737s. MCAS was, was, um, was put into the, into the 737 MAX because the 737 MAX has a greater propensity to pitch up into high angles of attack that would possibly lead you into a stall than previous 737s. And the reason for that is the size and the placement of the engines, the new CSM LEAP engines. They're physically larger than even the engines on the NG, and they're, and they're placed a little bit farther forward and a little bit higher up on the wing than the, they are on the NG. And I believe that that leads to three characteristics uh, that make the 737 match, uh, Max more prone to a, a pitch-up into a potentially dangerous area in terms of angle of attack than previous 737. One is the mass of the engines themselves. The engines are the heaviest components in the plane. They're very far ahead of both the center of gravity as well as the wing center of lift. And so once the, end, the airplane starts to rotate on its longitudinal axis, once it starts to pitch up, the mass of those engines, as far out in front as they are, wants to continue that pitch up. It's just an, an inertia thing. You know, if you're in the dark and you're reaching for a light switch and you move your hand up to hit the light switch and you miss it, you, know, you might hit, smack yourself in the forehead. It's the same kind of thing. Um, the second thing is the engine nacelles, again, they're large. They are capable of generating lift on their own, at, particularly at high angles of attack. And so that lift, again, because it's so far out in front of the wing, also exacerbates the tendency of the, the plane to pitch up at high angles of attack. And then finally, the center line of thrust in the engines and the placement of the engines is such that uh, on application of thrust, like a, a go-around thrust or, or something else, that also ex- exacerbates the airplane's pitch up. So you get into kind of what, I, what I've thought of as the worst-case scenario. You're in the terminal environment, but you haven't deployed uh, flaps. By the way, deploying flaps will uh, neutralize MCAS. MCAS will not operate if the flaps are extended. So you haven't yet extended the flaps from landing, but you're still in a, in a busy terminal environment. And let's say you get a traffic advisory from your TCAS system. And the TCAS is saying, traffic's really close, pull up, pull up, pull up. So now you're going to pull back on the yoke, and you're going to do it pretty, pretty, pretty aggressively. So you're starting up a high rotation rate of the aircraft in the, upward, the nose-up position, you are uh, achieving a high angle of attack, so those engine nacelles are beginning to generate lift on their own, which is wanting to pitch you up even more, and you're going to full uh, power to, to climb as fast as you can. That also exacerbates the pitch up. I think it's in those situations that the test pilots thought, you know, this thing could quickly get out of hand for somebody, and if you're, let's say, three, 4,000 feet above the ground in a 737 and you stall it, 
you may not have time, even with normal stall recovery technique, to recover before before you hit the ground. So uh, it is my understanding that when they were doing the testing on the 737 MAX, the flight testing, the test pilot noted that it, it really had a pretty significant propensity to pitch up under those three conditions that I, I mentioned earlier. And they said, you know, maybe we need to have something akin to a yaw damper uh, in, in terms of its, its functionality that kind of softens that pitch-up tendency. And somebody came up with the idea of MCAS as the solution. That's very, very informative. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, uh, uh, hang on just one second, Colleen. Uh, on the 7.3, I, I flew the 200 for a while back many, many years ago. And uh, uh, as far as I know, they never, like on the MD-80 and the DC-9 where they stretched the fuselage, they eventually made the stabilizer a little, a little longer uh, or wider. And to my knowledge, on the 737, all they have not changed the the the, the size of the stabilizer with in, in even after they've stretched it uh, several times and all of that. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm correct in assuming that or not. Um, yeah, actually, that's that's a that's a, a great uh, point. Uh, one of the discussions I, I've had with people was um, over whether or not um, they could have instead of implementing something like MCAS, a software solution. If there was a hardware solution, such as lengthening the, the fuselage, which would have the uh, effect of giving uh, the horizontal stabilizer and the elevators more authority, and that that was ruled out. Um, there were a number of things, it is my understanding, that there were a number of what I would call hardware fixes to this problem that were explored, but that um, most of them, if not all of them, were shot down because they were felt that they would change the aircraft enough that it would require pilot retraining. And there seems oh. to have been some kind of, of, of dictum, some kind of absolute requirement that whatever you do, A, you've got to get the CFM leap engines in there because we're competing with Airbus, and that's what it's using. So we're going to lose the fuel efficiency point if we don't get those engines in. But whatever, so, so number one priority, get the, get the leap, leap engines onto the 737. Number two priority is whatever you need to do to do that, make sure that it doesn't trigger any type of recertification on change in pilot training. Interesting, yeah. Okay. Colleen? Greg? Okay, Greg, uh, Colleen here. Yeah. I like the description in the article where you say you can do your own angle of attack experiments just by putting your hand out the car door window and rotating it. Now, that I can understand, and we've all done that little experiment when we were young. And you've already addressed uh, AOA, but is there anything else that you can add to uh, the angle of attack information? Yeah, yeah, I, I can talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, uh, this gets me in a lot of trouble, but, but airplanes are simple. Uh, despite what anyone says about Bernoulli effects, low pressure or high pressure, whatever, um, the aeronautics people are screaming into their pillows whenever I say this, but it's air, wind, if you will, pushing on the bottom of the wing that makes it fly. It's as simple as that. Now, that air has to hit the bottom of the wing at an angle that's a little bit more than parallel to the bottom of the wing, but less than what's called the stall angle in order for the wing to work. And by work, I mean generate enough lift to lift the aircraft up, at either keep it in level flight or climb. 
Um, and, and that angle that the air is striking the bottom of the wing is called the angle of attack. Now, if it's too low, then the wing generates no lift. But it does that benignly. What I mean is, is the, you know, the aircraft will just slowly start to descend until you increase the angle of attack. But it won't depart from controlled flight. It won't do anything nasty. Now, if it's too high, if the air is hitting that bottom of the wing at too sharp of an angle, uh, the wing also will generate no lift. But it starts to get pretty nasty at that point. Um, the aircraft can, you know, depending on how it's designed, depending on what thrust the engines are, are, are running, all kinds of things, the aircraft can, could, could possibly rapidly uh, depart from what we call controlled flight. It could roll over on its back, for instance. Um, so you really want to avoid that situation. You're not too worried about too low of an angle of attack, but you're really pretty concerned about too high of an angle of attack. Um, in a best-case scenario, you're going to lose a couple thousand feet of altitude, and if you don't have a couple thousand feet, you're close to the ground already, uh, like the Lion Air crash and like the Ethiopian Air crash, you might not have enough time to, to recover from it. Um, kind of think about, you know, a flat-roofed building in a hurricane. If the, if the hurricane isn't that strong, if the wind isn't too, too bad, the roof stays on. If the hurricane is strong enough, the roof starts to generate lift, and it will fly away. But what else happens? The walls, which are perpendicular to the hurricane winds, they cave in and collapse. And what's the difference between the, the roof and the walls? The roof didn't stall. It flew, but the walls did, and they collapsed. Does that, does that shed any light at all? Yes. <laughs> uh, great. Uh, this is George Jen. I have a question here. One one item that seems to be to have been omitted for most of these discussions was the indicated airspeed, which, as we all know, is is a function of the stall. So, if if an airplane had a high, I mean, why is all the emphasis placed on the high angle of attack, with almost zero mentioned about the indicated airspeed? So, so that's that's a great question, and that's actually what kind of got me thinking about this. Way back when, you know, last year when the, the Lion Air had its first crash, and, and I, I heard that the system, the MCAS of that system, only relied on a single AOA sensor. I couldn't figure out why. I scratched my head because, as you point out, there are other sensors that are also tied into the avionics buses that the software system could use to either cross-check the angle of attack sensor or to, you know, make a determination that, hey, you know, maybe we're not actually close to the stall. One of them being airspeed, you know, and, and the other thing that's in there, I, and again, these are kind of secondary indications. They're not as direct an indication of the angle of attack, and the angle of attack is what makes an aircraft stall or not, but they're pretty good. My Cessna has no angle of attack indicator, so I rely on airspeed, as you point out. So why didn't, this is what I was thinking, why didn't the computers, if they saw an angle of attack of, say, let's say 20 degrees and they thought that the airplane was, was going to stall, why didn't they look at the PITO uh, indications? Why didn't they look at the airspeed? There's an airspeed computer. There's two airspeed computers, in fact, on the, on the 737. And the computer could have simply said, hey, what's our airspeed? And, it, and the computer could have said, oh, we're, we're clipping along at 300 knots, at which point the computer software should have said, you know, that doesn't jive with the, this angle of attack indication. So I'm going to err on the, on the side of caution, and I'm not going to push the nose over so hard that the pilots can't recover. The other thing they could have looked at, the computer could have looked at, was the attitude indicator, right? And if the attitude indicator 
indicators, there are more than one of them, of course, are saying, hey, we're in, we're in, in level flight. The pitot tube is say, saying we're running at 300 knots, and only the angle, uh, the angle of attack indicator is saying that there's a problem. Why didn't they look at that stuff? And it, you know, we, can, we can talk a little bit, little bit later in the broadcast about why I think they didn't. But that was the I, first I, thing that I, really yeah, got I'd, me I'd interested. Like to, yeah, I'd like to hear why they yeah. did not, because, you know, it's a, a primary uh, flight instrument. It's a, pi- a primary function of flight is your, always your airspeed. But I, I don't want to interrupt. We'll talk about it later on. Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, and, and that's, a, that's a central part of this whole thing. That's what makes it so fascinating. And again, you know, pilots like yourself, uh, software people like, like like myself, we're looking at these different sensors that are at our disposal, not just angle of attack. There's two angle of attacks. Why didn't they simply compare the two and if they didn't agree, not do anything? There's multiple PITO tubes. They can get air, air data from those things. If that doesn't jive with what the angle of attack sensors are saying, why didn't they use that information? And, and especially with the Lion Air crash, I couldn't figure that out. And it only started to become clear later on after the Ethiopian crash. Okay, thanks. Greg, this is Dorothy again. Uh, you mentioned previously uh, somewhat about MCAS. Can you expand a little bit more on that? And the second part to that question is, why do you think that Bowen felt it necessary to install this sophistication? Sure, sure. I, I talked a little bit about that and, and why earlier, um, but let me kind of rewind a little bit. Um, so at, at this point in the game, there are only two airframe manufacturers. There's Boeing, Boeing's absorbed McDonnell Douglas, there's Boeing, and there is Airbus. The two, um, the two products from those two companies that address this, this market, and it's a very crucial market, it's kind of mid-sized, single-aisle, um, three-abreast uh, aircraft, medium-range aircraft, is the 737, which came out in 1967, and the Airbus A320, which came out in about 1987. So there's 20 years that separate them. The 320 is a much newer design. It's still pretty old, but it's a much newer design. Um, and Boeing and Airbus are in the bad. This is the, the richest, literally, you know, in terms of both market share as well as money segment of the entire uh, aviation market. This is a very, very important segment of the aviation market. You got the 737 and you got the 320. Uh, and Boeing was about to lose, was, was worried that airlines that had only bought from them before and had only bought 737s, particularly American airlines, were going to start buying A320s because the A320 could take the new CFM Leap engine, which is more fuel efficient than the previous CFM 56 engine. Uh, that was both on the, the 320 and, and the 737. So Boeing, essentially, this is my understanding, started to panic. And they panicked, and they said, we've got to get the LEAF engine on the 737, or we're going to lose sales to Airbus, and that cannot happen. So they put the LEAF engine on the, the 737, and then during flight testing, they found that the LEAF engine on the 737 produced some unacceptable flight characteristics particularly this pitch-up tendency. Now, meantime, Boeing had made all kinds of promises to their airline customers that if the customers just sat tight, that within a few years, Boeing would have a new 737, 
It would have the new CFM LEAP engines, the energy-efficient LEAP engines. And here's the real icing on the cake. Boeing promised all these airlines that they could buy the 737 MAX, put it on the flight line, and all of their pilots who were coming off of 737 NGs and 737 Classic would not need one minute of new training to fly the MAX. It would fly exactly like a 737 Classic, a 737 NG flu. So there would be no need for training. And Boeing actually wrote into contracts that they would pay significant penalties if the airlines did have to retrain their pilots to fly it. So there's now this immense pressure to make sure that from a pilot's perspective, a 737 MAX is no different, literally no different from a 737 NG. It does not have any new systems. It does not fly differently. It's exactly the same. Then when they found these pitch-up characteristics of the MAX, they panicked a little bit, and then somebody, I don't know who yet, rose their hand and they said, hey, let's use MCAS to fix it and make this problem go away. And then the people at the top of Boeing said, that sounds great. I'm late for dinner. Do it. And they did it. So that's the reason why we have MCAS in the 737 MAX. Okay, thank you. Uh, that's some of what I read, and I really wanted our listeners to hear you expand a little bit more on it, so thanks so much. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and my understanding just – oh, go ahead. That's uh, right. Go right ahead. Uh, my understanding, and I don't quite – there was an article in the New York Times, I think two days ago, um, that talked about how there had been a previous version of MCAS designed into the, the 737 MAX, um, that dealt with some kind of maneuvering characteristic during um, high-altitude, high-speed high flight. And the article in the New York Times made it sound like the FAA considered high-altitude, high-speed flight to be the most critical phase of flight, which to any pilot, as well as the majority, I think, of the, of the lay public, doesn't sound right. We are always uh, all taught that the most dangerous part of, of, of the most critical part of flying is landing followed by takeoff and in fact both of the lion air crash and the ethiopian air crash essentially occurred during during takeoff we never heard that you know cruise is a particularly dangerous portion of flight so the fact that the faa was saying well yeah we did mcas and we certified it for high altitude high speed cruise flight and then when boeing said oh we also want to use it for low altitude low speed flight we weren't worried about it because that's not a critical phase of flight doesn't ring true at all um, so there's a you know there's, there's something going on there I think that that doesn't quite ring true. Yeah, uh, Greg, this is George again. Um, the the question I have is why do pilots need this extra help? In other words, in your opinion, how did we get to the point that an aircraft needed this technology? I mean, if you ask any of the pilots who are on the air right now, uh, I'm sure to a man. But to a person, you'll never hear that any – I know in my career, I never experienced a stick shaker once while flying other than during a check ride. So um, as you state in the article, it gets as tragic as it is interesting. Um, what, what, what did you mean by that? Did you mean like the new generation of pilots or uh, what, what, what did you mean by it? Um, yeah, that, that's a – that's another great question. Uh, in the in the article, um, I do point out that I'm not aware. And again, I, you know, I, I look at a lot of 
um, a lot of uh, airplane crashes. It's a fascination of mine. I've never heard of a crash of a 737 um, in particular uh, that was caused by the pilots inadvertently stalling the aircraft. Uh, it just doesn't happen during, during line flight uh, on these things. Um, I don't think that even without MCAS that that, that, that would be the, the case, that they would, there would be accidents because of, of stalling. Uh, and that's why I wrote in, in my article that, you know, that MCAS has now killed more people than it ever possibly could have, uh, could have saved. As you point out, um, pilots inadvertently saw, uh, stalling commercial airliners um, during, during line flight, i.e. during revenue flight, is basically unheard of. I'm, I don't know if it's a single instance uh, in the 737. It's an extremely po- you know, popular aircraft. There's 10,000 of them out there. Um, I've never heard of, of it happening. So, so you're right about that, I think. Um, now, back, back, to, back to the tragedy. Um, for me, and I was trained academically as a historian. Tragedy is simply the unfolding of history as a consequence of the past. And, and by that, I mean that the path of history is shaped by decisions made. Every decision leads to a new direction, and it leads to new decisions. And tragedy is simply the sum of all the decisions made in the past at any given point in time. And what that means is that the tragedy of the 737 MAX is the history of the decisions that led to over 350 people now being dead. And we don't know how we got to this point yet. I'm working on a book about it, and it will take a lot of work understanding how all of the decisions that led us to where we are came to be. What were the inputs? What were the considerations? What were the constraints and what role did faith, hubris, greed, and panic play in the decision-making process? It's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take a lot of energy to find it out. Well, do do you think that it was instituted in another effort to remove the pilot from from the equation almost? I mean, that's what it seemed... The first take that I had on it was that it seemed like that, that it was an attempt to remove the, in other words, let, let the machine make the decision. For, you know, you pilots, you just sit there and watch what the machine does. Yeah, that's, that's, I, I do think that there's, there's an element of that in my article that I wrote. I, I talk about the bitey dog, and I talk about this joke um, that was floating around back in the early uh, uh, 90s when the A320, which is the, the first fly-by-wire aircraft, uh, came out about what the role of the pilots would be in the future. And somebody made up this joke that in the future, um, airplanes would only have one pilot and they'd have a dog. And the one pilot only role was to make sure that the passengers were unnerved about the fact that there was nobody up front. So when passengers got on, on the plane, they saw at least there was one pilot. And the dog's job was to make sure that the pilot, if the pilot touched anything, that the dog bit him or her. So, um, so, so, you know, it, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is not a secret that pilots are expensive. And all else being equal, uh, the airlines 
would love to have a plane that flew itself and they didn't have to pay, uh, pay pilots and they didn't have to deal with pilot unions and they didn't have to deal with all that human resources nonsense. Um, and the, the manufacturers would love to sell them that airplane. Um, that's not a secret. That's, that's just pure economics. It's the same with the engines. If the airlines could get away with it, there would only be one engine on the plane, not two. Right? We went from the 707 with four engines, you know, and, and then down through, uh, you know, the, the L-1011s that Eastern was flying with three engines, and now we're at, we're at two. And the only reason we're not at one and we'll get there soon, I think, is because of certification requirements that say you basically have to have two. Um, but if they could get rid of that second engine, they, they would, and they will. And if they could get rid you know, if they can get, they went from having a flight deck with a pilot, a co-pilot, and a, uh, an engineer, and maybe a navigator, now we're down to pilot and co-pilot. If they can get rid of the, the co-pilot, they will. And if they can get rid of the pilot, they will. That's just, that's just the way the money wants to go. So it's it's in other so, words, it's always follow the money is what you're saying. It's always follow the money, and and we can talk about this a little bit later. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk always about you know safety and safety is a culture of these things, and and um, it's not that safety isn't a consideration. Uh, aviation is is inherently um, very safety conscious, but it's safety conscious because. The industry cannot sell airplanes and it cannot sell seats on the airplanes if the public doesn't perceive the process as being very safe. So the industry is very interested in safety, but it's interested in safety because that supports the money side of it. And that's not quite as sinister as I, as I um, you know, uh, maybe sound about it. But it's just real. It's the, it's the reality of the thing. So the, air, the airline manufacturers and the airlines, they are interested in safety. But they're interested in safety from a sense of self-preservation. Yep. But, Greg, doesn't everyone stop to think about all of the new things that are going in there, all computerized, and that we know how computers do break here and there, they malfunction. Uh, how are they going to plan for that? Um, so, so that goes back to the point I, I was talking about at the beginning of this. Um, the computers increase the, the level of complexity in the aircraft significantly. And, and the more complex a system you have, the more ways it can fail. One of the right. great things about having, you know, about having two engines on a plane as opposed to four is you've significantly reduced the chance of having an engine failure. Um, so so the, the more you can simplify things, the, the, the less opportunity for failure there is, but with computerization, you're going the other way. You're making things much more complex. Uh, a 737 Max with the MCAS system is a much more complex airplane than a 737-300, uh, and it fails in ways that are, as I pointed out earlier, incomprehensible. Boeing did not see this coming, uh, for instance, um, because how, the how airplane many, simply become how many become too complex. Have- have software engineers on it that could handle it if one of these complex computers don't work. Um, well, that's that's also something um, I think we might talk about a little bit later in, in the broadcast. But but briefly, there's a there's a huge disconnect in between how engineering is done for what I call hardware engineering, building airplanes, building bridges, uh, building ships. Let's say and software engineering, my field. 
um, and thought the, 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 the level of sophistication or care, if you will, with regard to things like quality control, testing, failure analysis, et cetera, in software engineering is decades behind that uh, in, in hardware engineering. So the more that you move the complexity of your system away from aluminum, nuts and bolts, um, mechanical things, and towards software, the more that you use software to maybe cover up problems with the hardware, the more you're relying on a discipline uh, and a profession, frankly, that doesn't have the experience in, with regard to testing and quality control in order to make sure that lives aren't put in danger that's the norm in hardware engineering. I want to ask Chuck to ask you a question now. We have to move on. And uh, great questions. And I'm sure this is uh, – our host and our listeners are thinking of questions to ask you, Greg. But, uh, Chuck, you've got one here, and we'll move right along. Okay. Uh, Greg, um isn't the FAA involved in the certification of an airliner? And why did they miss this part of the aircraft system? And uh, to me, um, uh, isn't Boeing responsible for this? Well, um, I mean, well yeah, obviously, yeah, yeah. So, so obviously, Chuck, the, the FAA is very much involved in, in the manufacturer's building and designing of an airplane. But, um, and I go into this in the article a little bit, you know, decades ago, a decision was made to, to start to outsource much of the certification process um, to the manufacturers themselves. There are a lot of reasons for this. The FAA couldn't pay people enough to attract engineers with, with, with the talent, frankly, to be able to understand what the manufacturers were telling them about their systems. Um, and there was a certain amount of efficiency that they thought if they had the the, uh, the manufacturers do their own self-certification, and that was what brought us the whole designated engineering representative or DER program. Um, I don't think it's quite as bad as some people are making it out to be. Um, it's you know, it, 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 I think the program was was started with the best of intentions, and I don't think again, it's a very safety conscious. Uh, culture for obvious reasons, uh, but somehow the process um, with regard to the 737 MAX, the, the DER process and the, and the FAA's reliance on the manufacturers to self-certify uh, went horribly wrong in the case of the 737 MAX. Um, I think it has something to do with the shifting design. Again, the 737 MAX when it first came out, they had MCAS for high-altitude, high-speed flight, and then they said, well, let's adapt it to low-altitude, low-speed flight. And I think that those, change, those changes were not brought to the attention of the FAA. I think it also is on the FAA for not asking the right questions. Now, the FAA should have been asking questions about this. Um, and I think it also, a lot of it has to do, with, as I kind of um, said earlier, with the immaturity of software engineering versus hardware engineering in the certification process. But I think, and this is what's really fascinating to me, the design of MCAS was so obviously deficient that I think it's impossible that no one at either the FAA or Boeing or Boeing customers could have looked at MCAS and said yes, could have looked at MCAS and said, okay, 
And why that happened is, as I said, it's the stuff of which books are made and graduate PhD dissertations are written. Just a question a little off the course here, but you were telling how the engines were um, set forward on the wing and mm -hmm. how the power to ratio was a lot uh, higher on this aircraft and it tended to obviously pitch the plane in an upward motion and this was going to solve the problem. Why, why did they design a plane that did that? Well, again, they 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 had to they they had they had this, this directive to get the the new very much larger CFM leap engines onto the plane because they couldn't lose sail to Airbus, and they had another directive which was whatever you do to get these engines onto the plane, make sure that nobody thinks it's any different from a 737NG, that no pilot retraining needs to happen that the pilots operating, that the operating manuals that are carrying the plane are identical, that there's no change whatsoever. And then they found this, this, this uh, negative flying characteristic that they were afraid with that characteristic in there, they would not be able to get the aircraft certified. And they said, oh, I know a cheap way to fix this, and that cheap way is MCAS. So Boeing was bottom line people uh, looking to solve a problem, do you think Boeing is responsible for these accidents? Um, ultimately, I would say that, that Boeing is responsible. I don't know yet, and I, I talked about this just, just a few minutes ago, I don't know how it happened. This is, this is such, such a calamity. This is such a huge screw-up that it, it is um, it is incomprehensible to me how an organization the size of Boeing with people of the talent that Boeing has, that a risk to the corporation's reputation and to its bottom line, and, and frankly, possible risk to the continuance of the corporation's existence could have ever come off. Somebody, hundreds of people should have looked at this thing before the first one ever flew and said, oh, God, no, we can't do this. I mean, from the simplest Cessna that you're flying, when you start out flying, even today, um, I don't believe they teach students to purposely put a plane so it's going to be in an altitude that it's going to crash. They might on no, the simulator. Right, no, no, they 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 teach you. I I mean, it's been a long time since I was a student, but even back then, we were most of our training was was concentrated on on making sure we didn't get into that situation. Right? What's what's right. the what's the what's the what's the saying? You know, an extraordinary pilot uses his extraordinary <laughs> or her extraordinary planning to make sure that they never have to use their extraordinary skills. I'm going to move on to George Stinn now. Here, I just uh, we we're, we're limited on our time, folks, and uh, we want to get in as much as we can with uh, with Greg. This is a wonderful uh, interview we're having, so let's just keep it moving right along. George, you're next. Yeah, um, Greg, it's George again. I believe uh, you've already answered uh, the question uh, that's in, this, in, the, in the question that I had, um, except for one thing. Why, why, why 
why do the manufacturers, including Airbus and Boeing, why do they seem to be running pell-mell to always come up with a new a new model or something like that of, of an existing aircraft? I mean, for example, the 757, uh, that's still, you know, although they're phasing them out now, a lot of airlines, it's still the basic airplane. I don't believe that one was ever stretched or, you know, I think they had a choice of different engines to put on them when they were first manufactured. But, I mean, why why is it always, is it to keep up with the Joneses, in this case, case to keep up with Airbus? Is that why they, I think you already mentioned that, that's why they did this. Um, yeah, and, and I think to, to a certain degree you've already answered your own question. Um, the industry does not want new. It wants cheaper, but new is nothing but pain and heartbreak. Right now, Boeing is losing money on every new 787 that they sell, and frankly, I think the customers hate them. So if you can make tried and true just as cheap, i.e. just as efficient on a seat mile basis, as a new aircraft, then tried and true is going to win every time. <clears throat> Again, the, the 787 project, which is a truly new plane, and is a design that's less than 10 years old, is a career killer. It's hemorrhaging money for both Boeing, its customers, and its suppliers. And it's not now certain if it will ever make money. I, the last figure I saw was the 2000th airframe, 787 airframe, may be the break-even point. Um, now, on the other hand, even with the MAX fiasco, the 737 prints money for Boeing and its employees and its suppliers and its customers. Interesting. Thank you. Yeah, Greg, this is Mike again. Uh, in answer to George's question he had there before, the 757, they did stretch it from a 200 to a 300. I forgot the length, but they, they made very few of them before they closed the line. But anyway, the the, the question is uh, uh, that I understand in your article you have a Cessna aircraft and uh, are general aviation aircraft uh, becoming as sophisticated and automated as their big brothers and uh, to my point, uh, I mean, I owned a Cessna 150 for 21 years, and nothing worked in that airplane. I had uh, half the time the airspeed indicated didn't work. The alt- nothing worked. I just flew it by the seat of my pants. And now I own a 1933 biplane Waco that has needle ball and airspeed. And I belong to several of these uh, new aviation clubs, and all they do is talk about all of their uh, electronic devices that they have in all their new airplanes. And you know they're all made out of plastic, and they're all glass and uh, and automated and everything else. And I'm kind of lost with all of that stuff. I just sit and listen in awe to what's what they're all doing by just pushing buttons all the time. Uh, and what do you, what is your take on that? Well, that, that's that's a, a, another great question, uh, and it's kind of beautifully related to to what we were just talking about. Um, so, so let me give a little disclaimer. Uh, in addition to owning a 40-year-old Cessna 172, I also own and live in a 170-year-old house. So I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with old things. Now, though it was built before the Civil War, the house that I live in has high-speed fiber optic internet. It has LED lighting. It has a beautiful, super-efficient geothermal heating and cooling system. It has double-pane windows, indoor plumbing, and a place in the stables, i.e. the garage, for me to plug in my Tesla. 
So in short, it has every modern amenity that a house built last year would have. But it also has 10-foot ceilings throughout the house, and the walls are framed in uh, four-by-eight walnut timbers. In other words, it's not only modern in terms of its amenities, but it's also very well built. So likewise, though the aluminum that makes up my Cessna's airframe is, like me, already getting offers from the uh, from AARP, the systems <laughs> in the plane are identical to brand new designs that you mentioned coming out of the airplane factories today. I have a multi-megabit digital uplink and downlink in the form of ADSB. I have electronic flight computers, a digital autopilot, redundant GPS navigators, and yes, even in my 40-year-old Cessna now, LED lighting. Um, so back to your, your question again. Um, in my article, I tried to make the point that other than size, there really isn't much of a difference between my Cessna and the 737 MAX. I agree, Anyone who's Right. Anyone who's flown my plane, and I've I've flown a 757 in a full motion simulator at UPS, and this, you know, it just reinforced this. Uh, But anyone who's flown my plane and anyone who's stepped into a 737 MAX would quickly be able to identify the similarities in controls and equipment. And despite being really the same thing, and this is another point I tried to make in the article, my Cessna had to go through much more rigorous certification process and paperwork filing to have all that equipment put in, not to mention pilot training and documentation that's now carried in my plane, than what was required of the 737 MAX. So the question is, why? We're all flying around in this new system, which requires most of this stuff now. So that's the only answer that I have about it. It, it is actually safer, but uh, it's, uh, it's us old timers that fly airplanes are are not used to all this new gadgetry. Do we still have you, uh, Greg? Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. I just ended with, with kind of a rhetorical question, which is, why did my Cessna, when this sophisticated autopilot and, and flight control system with, with envelope protection, why did I have to file all this FCC paperwork? Why do I have now, you know, a, a couple inches of new documentation that I have to carry around in, in my aircraft and be familiar with? Whereas the seven, same thing in the 737 MAX didn't require any of that. So, again, rhetorically, I'm asking why. I got you. Okay, Colleen. Okay. Uh, Greg, you mentioned that there are two sets of rules. Uh, can you explain what you're saying here? Yeah, so I, I touched it on that above. Um, I think the main reason is despite, and I talked about this earlier, despite the marketing slogans and the existential justification for things like the FAA, and I, again, I said this earlier, safety is never first. Money is always first. Now, that doesn't mean that safety is sacrificed. Far from it. Um, safety supports revenue. No one is going to sell an airplane that isn't safe. No one's going to fly an aircraft that isn't safe. And, again, as I mentioned earlier, that's what makes this whole thing so fascinating. MCAS is so broken. Its development was broken. The reason for having it is broken. It, and it, it has posed and does pose such a huge risk, not only to Boeing, but to the airlines flying this thing, then how could it possibly have happened? Why 
My cat looking at MCAT would say, no, this is a bad, this is a bad idea. Let's not do this. But apparently nobody did that. And I don't know the answer to that question, but to me it's absolutely fascinating. Okay, you're breaking up just a little bit, Greg. Uh, not certain uh, what kind of microphone or your phone, uh, but uh, uh, Don, you have a question? Uh, yeah, I think my question's been answered, uh, Neil. I'm going to pass it on down to Colleen. Okay. Um, part of your uh, abstract, you quote uh, one of my favorite comic characters, Pogo, by Walt Kelly. We've met the enemy, and he is us. Can you tell us what you're referring to? <laughs> yeah, and I, I hope I'll, I'll try to speak a little more slowly um, if, if I break it up here. Um, are you on? But, are you um, on? Did you put it on speaker? No, I'm still on this. Let me try something here. That's what it sounds like. It's not. Can clear. you hear that? You're, you're starting to fade yeah, out. Yeah, that, that's much better. Much that's better. Much better. Thank you. Okay. All right, I just I just put myself on speaker, so that's kind of yeah, that's what it was. That's um, better. So okay, let me let me let me start this again. So um, with regard to the the pogo thing, um, I was referring to the fact that there's going to be inevitable finger pointing. Everyone who's involved is going to try and find somebody else who's responsible. I've seen it all already with calls to blame the Lion Air and the Ethiopian Air pilots. And those are the people are the last people we should be looking for to blame. Those people are the heroes who went down with the ship. And by us, I mean not only Boeing, the FAA, and the airlines, but us ourselves, the public. We want safety, but we don't want to have to think about it. We want comfort, but we don't want to have to work for it. And we want a lunch, but we don't want to have to pay for it. So that's what I was referring to. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, you probably already pretty much answered this one, although we, you know, none of us have a crystal ball to be able to predict it with any certainty. But wh- where, do you, where do you think Boeing is going to go from here? Uh, another great question. Um, I suspect that Boeing will roll out its software fixes for MCAS, and the problem will be considered to be fixed. In a year or two, the public will forget about this issue to the extent that there will be no more headline-grabbing crashes. And even if they, the public, see that their next flight is on a 737 MAX, if it's cheaper than the alternative offered by other airlines, then that's the flight they're going to take. Now, Boeing will take a heavy hit in fines and lawsuits, and Boeing's customers will extract their pound of flesh from Boeing in the form of penalties and deep discounts, on the 737 MAX airframes. But those very penalties and deep discounts will keep them coming back for more 737s because at the end of the day, the 737 MAX and all is a hurricane of money that no one can ignore. Uh, Greg, the president said today, I think it was today, that uh, Boeing should rebrand that airplane, call it something else. I don't know what they would call it, but... uh, uh, as far as staying in the market with the airplane, did you see that? Yeah, I did. Comment about rebranding? 
I don't know. This could this could be this could be into politics, and I want to stay away from that like a rat. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I, if I was if this I was green airplane, I would, yeah, I would I would advise them to, to just basically wait until this thing goes away. So you can always call it the pogo. <laughs> I think they're going to get the problem squared away, and it's going to turn out to be a, a perfectly good airplane. They just got to get through all these obstacles. All right. And, and, and I, I I tend to agree. Um, I'm not sure I would ever fly in one myself again, but but I don't think that most people will feel not that way. Not too soon, anyway. No. Yeah, not too soon. Yeah. Uh, Jim Holder on the line. Jim Holder, are you still with us? Yeah, I've been listening to all this. <laughs> I got a question though. I might ask if uh, he's been he's Greg, been stirring up. Yeah, I, I, it's a simple thing. I'm a little confused on this. I I spoke to a good friend of mine who's a Southwest captain, and he flew about 400 hours on the 737 Max. And of course, I queried him about it, and he said it flew okay for him, of course. And I said, it's a simple question: Did did that thing have an air vane on both sides? And he said it absolutely did. And, of course, all the riffraff going on about it, that the number one, the captain's side, was a single source for the stall indicator. And he said, yeah, it looked like that's what it was. And my question is, did the other planes that did not take the expense of having that, did they have a stall indicator on the right-hand side, the co-pilot side, uh, for the e-filth and then the other airplane? I've been able, able to really find out and I may be the only person in the whole world don't know it, but did those planes that crashed have a angle of attack indicator on the side that were just sitting there telling the co-pilot what was happening, but not the system? Um, that's my understanding is, is, is that you're exactly correct. All the 737 uh, maxes leave the factory with two angle of attack sensors, one on the co-pilot side and one on the pilot side. The MCAS, mm-hmm. system, the MCAS system was deliberately designed to only take one of those angle of attack sensors as input. Right. That's what I thought. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and, the, and the angle of attack sensor corresponding with which flight management computer the co-pilots or the, 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 the captains was engaged. Mm-hmm. Somehow, somehow so they, they missed the comparator system. Attack mm-hmm. I'm sorry. The comparator uh, system. Yeah. Yeah, so so let's 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 talk about that, um, and and I'm probably going to get myself in trouble here. Um, the the question that lingered in my mind from the first crash was, given that the that the 737s um, leave the factory with two angle of attack indicators, why does MCAS only look at one of them? And and why when I first was looking at this, I thought it was just basically incompetence that the guys who um, designed the software, uh, weren't pilots, they weren't aviation people, they didn't know how important it was to look at both sensors and make sure at least that they agreed. I no longer believe that's the case. I believe that the, um, that the reason for only using one angle of attack sensor is, again, to avoid having to retrain the pilot. In particular, if the system took inputs from two angle of attack sensors, there would need to be a cockpit display that showed when those angle of attack sensors disagreed with one another, and more importantly, that said that MCAS was no longer in operation because there was a disagreement. 
And the minute that you have that kind of an indication in the cockpit, you have to have something in the operating manual that says what to do in the case of an MCAT inoperative condition. Now, remember, Boeing didn't tell anyone that MCAT even existed. Wow. Mm-hmm. So you can't have that, those kind of words in the manual for a system that you don't want to tell anyone exists because if you tell anyone it exists, then the pilots are going to have to get training on it. Well, that's exactly what my friend with the Southwest, he had no knowledge going about. They did have two angle attack indicators. So, well, well, why not? We got a pedo tube on each side. Now we got an angle attack on each side. Well, right. we see what happens. I think right. you've done a great job, Greg, and incidentally speaking tonight. Thank you. Agreed. So I'd like to. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'd like to. Uh, uh, Dorothy, before you uh, take over here, you remember last year at the REPA convention, Greg, we have the Retired Eastern Pilots Association sponsoring our show, and they had the convention last year in Charleston. And we had the pleasure, Dorothy and I and a few others, that uh, went over to the airport where the Dreamliner is built. And uh, we uh, talked with, as a matter of fact, the person that took us through the tour was Ricardo. I can't remember his last name. Dorothy, do you remember it? Uh, Ricardo Travis, I thought it was. Travis, that's right. I think it was. (laughs) And uh, kind of like Greg. But uh, at any rate, he said that he was a test pilot on the uh, 737 MAX, and I asked him a question about the, the demonstration that they make with these airplanes, and they did with the 737 MAX at the Paris Air Show, where you you see the takeoff, and they rotate, and they pull the airplane up into a severe angle of attack, like it's almost going up vertical, but as he told us, he said, well, it looks that way just because of the chase airplane that's filming it. Uh, the angle right. that they put on it, but uh, uh, it's uh, it's w- well above what is recommended as far as the angle of attack on climbouts that uh, most of uh, the companies adhere to. But uh, wonder why that didn't kick in if they they did exceed that. That's a, that's, a, that's an inter- interesting question. Um, yeah, yeah. Either it was designed to really kick in at a very high angle of attack that's not normally even in that kind of a situation encountered, or they knew enough to turn it off. Yeah, there you, go. There you go. They knew enough to turn it off, yeah. Very good. Dorothy? Uh, yes, Greg, we want to thank you for being with us tonight, and we'd also like to mention that Greg Travis lives with his son on a small farm in southern Indiana. In 1977, at the age of 13, he wrote one of the first social media platforms, Notes for the Control Data 6600 Supercomputer. Mr. Travis has been a pilot and aircraft owner for 30 years with over 2,000 hours as a pilot in command, flying everything from gliders to a Boeing 757 full motion simulator. As a writer and lecturer, Mr. Travis takes his tackles the intersection of technology and society on the subjects of aviation, health care, and cybersecurity. His work has appeared in Aviation Consumer, MIT Technology Review, Linux Journal, IEEE Spectrum, the Journal of the Organization of American Historians, and other publications. 
Greg, we do hope that if you write a book along the lines of your abstract work, you will let us know so we can schedule a show introducing your book. You have shed so much information about these tragedies and the Bowen 737 Max. Please let us know how we can see more of your work and the health articles you write. Many of our listeners are senior citizens and always interested in health issues. Kudos, thank, Greg. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Very good. It was some show. It was thank wonderful. you, Greg, very much. Thank you so much, Greg. We really, really enjoyed all the explanations. Um, I would like to, before we end the show tonight, thank everybody that we had requested the prayers for Peggy Holland, who is doing well and in recovery and a rehab for her broken hip replacement. Also, to keep those prayers going for our host, Jim Hart, who's having tests done, and we want to say that whatever findings they give Jim will be minor. Uh, We had a member of Brick Parker who is requesting information. His father was in Eastern Res Management, and he is looking for the hotshot pilot that flew 727 through Little Cottonwood Canyon out of SLC, Utah, sometime in the mid-1980s like 85 or maybe 86. To contact us and we'll let you know, we'll give your email address to um, Brett. Also, the countries listening to our show have been two more added, and that was Mongolia and Turkmenistan. Uh, We always have Norway that listens in the past and other countries that we have identified. Our new member is uh, Bonnie Burnett Cohen, was stationed in MIA, and uh, we're happy to announce that our membership is up to 1,016. We want to thank Reaper once again for our sponsorship, and to please keep in mind that uh, Reaper President Johnny Steinmatz has confirmed the dates for the Reaper Convention. September, it's actually a reunion this year, September 4th to the 6th at the Embassy Suites in Kennesaw. And more information can be obtained on the REPA website at REPAonline.com. Back to you, Neil. Well, thank you, Dorothy. Thank you, Greg. Our hosts for tonight's show have been Dorothy Gagnon, you just heard, Don Gagnon, her husband, Chuck Albright, George Jen, Colleen DeFelice, and Mike Scott, and listening in also and commenting, Jim Holder. Um Great show, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, good questions. I learned a lot. I don't know about you guys, but I learned a I heck of a lot tonight. Yep. And you certainly yep. answered all our questions. Yeah, and then some. <laughs> and then some, right. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Very good. Okay. Uh, we're going to uh, land the airplane. And, uh, Greg, if you're still listening, uh, and if you haven't heard a uh, uh, landing aircraft on the radio, it sounds something like this.
Great landing, Captain, as usual. And thank you, Greg Trevor, for being our special guest tonight. Be sure to tune in again next week, April the 22nd, when America's favorite way to fly returns to the cyberways and the radio show looks at Eastern's Big Three. We're talking about airports, of course. Mr. Producer, can you put some champagne music on? How about that? Good night to the Eastern family and friends around the world. Good night, people from airlines, wherever you are. We love you, Eastern. We love you, Eastern. Good night. Good night, Greg. Good night. Good night, Greg. Good night so much. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 